Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia, the show where we talk to founders, investors, and entrepreneurs impacting the startup scene here in Asia and abroad. This week, we continue the theme of talking to my good friends who are global by nature. Rajan Devnath is co-founder of a venture called Nivo, which is a venture which we are not entirely sure what it is yet. What does that mean? Well, we'll find out later. Previously, Raj was part of the founding team of Easy Taxi Philippines, and afterwards, he successfully sold one of his businesses called Pillows in Space in the Philippines. After his first exit, he tried to build a series of other ventures too, and is continuing this trend today. Despite his extensive experience in venture building, he is originally a hardcore telecommunications engineer by trade who worked for global companies such as Huawei in India. In this episode, we discuss a lot of issues around China and what the tech scene is like in China and living in China. Raj previously was part of the senior leadership of a well-known startup based in San Francisco called The Studio and was seconded to China for the past few years. We get to dig into big Chinese tech companies, the potential of 5G, India vs. China, the founder journey, and how to develop startup ideas. This was a very enjoyable session for me, and I hope you enjoy it too. Let's dive right in. Rajan, welcome to the show. How are you, my friend? Hey, good, good. Very good. I'm loving the winters here, actually. Yes, you wanted to do this call early in the morning, right? So are you, are you a morning person or? Yeah, I wake up at 5.36 these days, man. Like, it's, when, really when did this like start it. to happen? <laughs> actually, it happened when I, after my last uh, venture I was working with, uh, a studio, I took, I went on a three month uh, break, travel around China. And that kind of like got me into the rhythm of like waking up 6am in the morning. And I really started liking it. It just changes my whole day it makes it so much more productive and i i i don't think i want to change that what 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 do you need to do to prepare yourself to wake up so early like what, what's that's the a process very good question yeah right? that's a very good question yeah uh, i mean uh, to create a habit because it's my habit now you need to yeah. like change the cue so one thing i noticed was after 8 p.m I used to like be on my phone a lot. I used to reply to text messages after 8 p.m. And it creates creates like a stress mm. in your mind. And you tend to like, has he replied or not? So I don't respond after 8 p.m. That's one. Second, I prepare myself mentally that 8 p.m. is, or 9 p.m. is when I have to be home. So I pre- okay. plan my day for 9 p.m. So that puts me in the like a mindset mm. that 9 p.m. is my sleeping time. And within one hour, I read a bit and all, and then I'm able to sleep. So these two like have helped okay. a lot. Yeah. So I mean, it's like yeah, it's setting the mental state in advance that you have to force your routine early. So then yeah. one, your mind is there. Then two is just following through. Mm-hmm. And then what time are you sleeping by? I sleep by 10, 1030. Uh, yeah. Okay. One thing, well, one thing I've also changed is what I really compromise on sleep. Like even if I have to cut down whatever, Eight hours is something I'll I'll always get now. I still get seven and a half or eight. So yeah, never compromising on it. <laughs> okay, so so two things about that. How how would you contrast yourself? I mean, w- would you still say the same thing if you were in your early twenties when we were at Rocket Internet building Easy Taxi? Or is that something <laughs> like a rite of passage? Like I mean, I feel like everyone hits thirty and they're like, yeah, I need yeah. sleep. Which because I mean, it's true. <laughs> but w- yeah, do, yeah. do you think that makes sense to to get, apply that advice for young people? No, I think I, I mean, every person is different. <laughs> I think, I think when you're in your twenties, you should just do, you should just do, don't just do like crazy stuff because I actually like remembering those things when I slept three hours, four hours, two hours, 
it's just good story to remember, right? And end of the day, it's all about memories. So, and and the thing is, your body has way more tolerance when you're in, when you're super young. So just yeah. take advantage of your tolerance. <laughs> true. So it's true. okay. It's okay. Sleep less. It's okay. If you're passionate. When, when you're younger, something. yeah, sleep sleep less. But I think if you're not cognizant by the time you hit your late twenties and thirties, it's going to hit you really hard. And then then you start to see a cognitive decline and your performance and. I do probably think by the time you hit your 30s, like you said, you have to find this better balance and routine, right? Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. I I also think like every person is different. Like I, it's more about like, I'm being more mindful of how I do things. So I have seen people performing okay with like six and a half, seven hours. But for me, like I want eight hours. I mean, it's, it's genetics. So some, some people yeah. actually can do that. Or maybe there's a hidden cost that they're going to pay later when they get older, right? Probably, probably, yeah. Right. And I guess the, yeah. the second thing about that then is, so you have this routine of no replying, but it's like, it sounds like you're you're very, it sounds like you're the type of person who's very focused for work, right? So no no work calls. But what are your other distractions at night then? Like say, say you know, you're going to mess up. I don't think you hit your routine 100% of the time. Like you're going to bed by 10, 30 or 11, right? Yeah. But maybe sometimes what what's keeping you up till 12? What are you getting distracted by? Social media, TV, movies, what 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 habits? Yeah, a good question. So actually, I I don't do social media anymore. Uh, thankfully, I just I don't I don't enjoy sharing my private life anymore. But, but you do you do Twitter though, right? My Twitter, I tweet like once in I don't know a few months. months. I think once a month at least. I think once a month. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, like I, some I, crazy. Yeah, <laughs> we can yeah. follow you on our Devnath. Our Dev. How do you say your last name? Devnath. Our our Devnath. Yeah. Our Devnath. Yeah, yeah, which is R D E V N A T H. Yes. It makes no okay. sense because Dev Dev means God and Nath is also a god. <laughs> uh, and what so. in what language? In Hindi, Indian uh, language. In Hindi. Okay. So yeah. you're Rajan God God. God God. And my first name means King. <laughs> king. The king of God yeah. of Gods. Very that's I don't know. Maybe it's a good name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Epitome of whatever the best could be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what did you have for breakfast? Oh yeah. That's another thing I changed. So I, 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 I love yogurt. So I, 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 I eat a lot of yogurt and nuts, blueberries. I love okay. making my own breakfast now. It takes 15 minutes, but uh, it's just, I look forward to my breakfast when I wake up. <laughs> Interesting. And yeah. is this, uh, I mean, of course this is part of getting to a better diet, better habit, better routine. So are you the type of person that eats the same breakfast every day or do you need to change it up? I mean, I I like changing things, but I love yogurt and nuts so much that I don't, I don't want to change it. <laughs> I really uh, like yogurt and nuts. Have have you have you been ordering Amazing Grace? I have ordered like Amazing Grace before and I think very good product. But it's just I I just I'm trying to like make my own stuff in the morning. So okay, I, I like enough. the process. I like the process of making my own coffee, my breakfast. It doesn't cost more than fifteen. It's like a, a ritual. Minutes. Okay. Yeah, I I just love it. Yeah. But then, what does your typical breakfast say in in Shenzhen, China? I mean, uh, if you're not making it. Oh, you mean like in and generally in Shenzhen? Yeah. I would say people like people eat like pork buns in the morning. They. It depends, like people, like in in cities, I would say people like takeouts have become like a norm. 
So like yeah. Starbucks, it depends too. Like Shenzhen is of course a tier one city. So a lot of Western stuff here, but even within Shenzhen, like there's a lot of it. There are a lot of like mom and pop stores and they're like, they, they sell those like buns, pork buns and all and uh, some, yeah. some soya, soya drinks. So people just grab and go. It's, it's, and it's a very like, it's a very, very rushed, very, uh, very, very rushed city. So people don't tend to stay at home that much. That's fascinating because when I talk to people from from China and other parts, say say like uh, say Shanghai or Beijing, they would say arguably Shenzhen is actually a lot slower compared to the other cities. <laughs> actually, there's a term called Shenzhen speed, and they say there is this China speed, and then there's Shenzhen speed. Shenzhen speed, oh, so it's like no, oh, it's way faster. Like like okay. people. Shenzhen has grown like, I mean, it's undoubtedly like it has grown like the fastest in whole any of the Chinese cities. It's, 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 it's top three cities in terms of GDP and everything. So, and, yeah. and in only 50 years, 50, yeah, it completed 50 years this year while Shanghai and all has been there for like 200 years now. So, yeah. I mean, there's no doubting. The other well, thing is more, like probably a, f- a few hundred or thousands here, maybe, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. So you were saying? No, I was, I was just saying like Shenzhen is not even like people say Shenzhen is not a family city because life mm. is so fast here uh, while Shanghai and Beijing is way more good, like better for families ah, okay. and to raise okay. kids and all. I, so, I, I remember why I, I said that because I had once met a grab driver and he was a chef in China, uh, in Shenzhen for, I think like more than a decade. And, and I think his life maybe was slow. That's why. He felt it was probably a good pace. Maybe it's different for people not working in the scene, which I guess is very tech centric, right? Probably. Also depends yeah. on the time. I, I I don't know when he was working. Pro- in last ten years, I think uh, like Shenzhen has become crazy in a, in a good way. Like I, I I like the speed here. I really like the mm. city. So it's like a tier one big big metropolis, fast pace, has its own ecosystem, growing very fast. Yeah. And if you're in tech, like all the new tech stuff gets implemented here by the government. And also I, it's, yeah. it's, it's like a heaven to be in, in that sense. Yeah. And uh, how long have you been in Shenzhen by now? I've spent one and a half years. Yeah. Is it easy I, uh, for foreigners to stay? I think Shenzhen is definitely like less international compared to Shanghai or Beijing, but like, People, even the people within here are are actually very open because it's an immigrant city. So you 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 get accepted pretty fast, even though the language might be a bit mm. of a barrier there. So if you're a local from China, it's like no brainer. Even if you're yeah. international, it's actually easy. It's not that difficult. So I mean, you can pretty much operate on English anywhere you go. Then I would say eighty percent of the like if Shanghai is ninety ninety five oh. here eighty percent, yeah. For sure. Yeah, I mean, well, as a tourist, I would imagine like uh, Shanghai not being an issue. Like, it's probably 100% you're fine. Probably very few situations, like you said, probably 95%, like a few situations where you're going to need Chinese. But I mean, man, that's pretty crazy. So 80%, like, you can actually live, get around, work, and conduct business in English. Work, if you're working in tech, like, from, because Shenzhen has a long history and still is, is a manufacturing. So if you're talking, if you're more on the supplier mm, side true. of things, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. of course you need Mandarin. That's true. But if you're on the front end, like Shenzhen is, is, is a hub for like cross-border business and also they need, they speak English, yes. Okay, so then you've had no problems and uh, I guess, are you picking up Chinese then? Yeah, I, I am. I would only add, I suck at languages in general. So I, I, I started taking Mandarin classes uh, back in uh, February, then I had to give it up. 
because of work and I also am not a good student, but yeah, I am. I, I am slower but, than yeah. what ideal would be. <laughs> you know what the, the traditional advice is on how to learn a language, right? You speak with the locals. You you get a girlfriend, uh, yeah, a Chinese girl. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. my the 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 girl I was dating, she was American Chinese, so her her English oh, was okay. better. So she spoke English. <laughs> yeah, but then that's why she's an ex now. So we'll see. Uh, that's why because you couldn't learn Chinese faster. <laughs> yeah. we, we, no, no one's gonna judge you. Hopefully, okay. So a little bit about you. Intros. You're you studied engineering. And you actually started yeah. your career as an engineer. Yeah. How, how much of that exists and is a part of you now? I would say it's a very interesting question. So I started off being a pure engineer and then I moved into like completely non-technical. I am actually going back to a little bit of technical side now and I'm starting to enjoy it more. But what, what kind of engineering did you do study and work as? Yeah. So I, I did electronics and communication engineering. Oh, it's and, hardcore. <laughs> yeah, it's like super hardcore. It was one of the toughest to get in. I, I, my school was actually quite good too. So, so, and then I, yeah, I worked for uh, telecom. I was a network engineer, same as my field. Okay. Um, work, yeah, work for Huawei for a couple of years, uh, two years, almost two years. Before it was um, big. Before it was. Before it was like this massive political machine that causes problems with the world, right? Or at least, sorry, yeah, from the yeah. Western perspective, from the Western perspective, at least, yeah. Yeah, actually, it's it's funny, but the, the, when I joined Huawei, they used to be like the third te- third biggest telecom after Ericsson. Yeah, no, globally, globally, globally. Okay. Yeah, wow. So back, globally, back then they were big. They, yeah, they were already big. So they were ah, globally back in two thousand nine. Okay. Yeah. So number one used to be Ericsson, then Nokia, Siemens, and Huawei was number yeah. three. But when I left in two thousand eleven, they were number one. So oh, imagine wow. the two years. Yeah, yeah imagine yeah, the two yeah. years. That was like crazy. And I loved it. It was it was really good. Yeah, I, I yeah. I mean, like, active. And even being in Southeast Asia for ten years, I didn't realize the scope of how massive it was. And of course, I guess being uh, number three, then number one in the world. The, of course, the biggest ba- base and growth is from China, obviously. But then it means they're also reaching internationally within those two year period, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Their their biggest market was bigger. Biggest growth came from Africa and Europe. Uh, yeah, part, part of the external expansion plan man, that yeah. probably makes a lot of sense. But what exactly was your job then as an you know network engineer and uh, an engineer who studied uh, electronics and communications? Yeah, so my I studied telecom. So I was basically working on the Huawei telecom network on the on the four G back then in the like outside of China it was four G network that they were implementing. So I was working on MPLS, BTS, basically all these network technologies. BTS are your towers that you see. Okay. You gotta <laughs> yeah, help. The, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> MPLS is a technology through which how the the communication wave, the the telecom communication wave happens. It's basically a routing technology. But, and back then it was, it was one of the core. So yeah, I mean, I was working on their 4G network, basically. 4G, so you work okay. with, yeah. yeah, you work with a lot of like clients. I was like Vodafone. You're, you're basically a middle person working with the Vodafone, implementing like Huawei's network on, on Vodafone's communication. So yeah, that's, that's what. So, and, and, okay. and speaking of that, what, what is your take on 5G now? I think, I think for the masses, it's an incremental value for the for the masses, but for for business for business and for let's say a certain part of customers, like it does help a lot on a specific scenarios, five G overall. 
But I think 4G is good enough for masses globally. I mean, for where the current technology is, but I mean, I I, I was seeing a, a kind of like a, a brother-in-law showing me his download speed in Australia. It's like 200 megs down on, on a mobile phone. I yeah, mean, yeah, I have to imagine this. This is like typical home internet for not so good countries like America, probably. I mean, the standard here is like, you know, a, a half a gig or a gig is a standard now, right? Yeah, for yeah. download speeds. And then I, I could imagine on your mobile, like eventually you don't even need the home internet anymore. You don't need the wires and cables. It unlocks like probably gaming is going to be the first thing that part takes advantage, right? It, it unlocks so many possibilities of so much bandwidth of data. I mean, also probably what internet, internet of things, uh, wearables, mm. right? Like, exactly. There's so much that could take advantage of this now. Yeah. So the yeah, absolutely. So so the biggest advantage is actually in IoT because the way five G works is 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 it it advantages the the IoT lot more. The only thing is wearables or IoT in general, it hasn't become a mainstream yet. So that's why I was saying like the biggest value it gives it like in in couple of years, yes, five G will add a lot of value. In terms of download speed, like if you think like, yes, gaming is definitely, but even within gaming is the most high graphics, high end graphics one. That's where it adds most value. But most of it, most of the gaming can actually work on 4G and actually 4G has different types as well. There's LTE 4G, which is like yeah. the higher art and most of the countries now have LTE. So the step up from LTE to 5G in terms of what we use on a day to day is fine. I, in my opinion. Yeah. On, correct. On, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, for, for what we currently have, I, I'm just kind of curious to see. I mean, like the thing is we don't know, we don't know. And what, what this like massive potential could unlock is just the next wave of, I don't know, you know, for AR, sure. VR, what, I don't know. And is, is there anything exactly. interesting from, from a Shenzhen perspective that you're seeing? Well, I mean, aside from 5G, maybe 5G or what, like what's the buzz in Shenzhen now? Definitely IoT. Like you see like Xiaomi has actually been at the forefront of of like oh, yeah, going man. like mass in iot huawei is actually making good strides dji already like doing good in drones they are going so iot is definitely something like they all are mm. like it's it's quite and in fact it's at the forefront like globally yeah i mean I just, I, from from a from a xiaomi perspective like i know like there are some diehard customers here in malaysia like their whole house is decked out from Xiaomi from top chat. to bottom. Like their TV, the yeah. fridge, the lights, the phone, the uh, mon- the com- computer monitors, like, like everything. I mean, and like yeah. what, what they do is like, I think, I don't know how they're taking advantage, maybe because they have the, the economies of scale, but the pricing, no one can beat it for for the hardware that they're, they're producing, right? So Xiaomi, yeah, Xiaomi's business... Smart. Xiaomi's business model is very interesting. Like, I don't know if I should... To talk detail about it, but they started off Go doing everything themselves. Okay, the, so Xiaomi actually started off doing everything themselves, basically like yeah. an o, o, OEM, but eventually they realized they can do everything themselves. So actually, a lot of Xiaomi products are not Xiaomi products. So it's basically Correct. the fact factories in there. It's the factories who they treat them as startups, and Xiaomi incubates them, and then releases the product and. I'll, it, it depends on what kind of product it is, but most of the time you will see like an M logo. It's one of the Xiaomi's portfolio, so-called startup factory. And oh, if wow. something does well, then they bring it under their portfolio. So they are kind of being an incubator for startups, funding them, like making advantage of taking advantage of their network and all. I mean, that 
I, I didn't realize that model exists. How does it work? I, the, aside from capital, I guess ca- capital would be a big constraint for manufacturing. Um, what is it? Process operations? Uh, they bringing like for like why would I want to be incubated by Xiaomi? Yeah, good question. So, so actually, the biggest challenge for a lot of these factories are market reach. Like everybody starting from ground zero. Yeah. How do they get the distribution, the, reach the market? So Xiaomi has a good brand, yeah. like a good good standard of quality, I would say. And Xiaomi has their own operations process in order to like how they select a brand and all. And they, of course, like optimize the back end ops. But the biggest value is on the customer side. Okay. So so if I'm like a manufacturer of a niche, I go to Xiaomi and then they basically help me scale it up and then they'll invest and probably acquire if it's good. Yes, they, they don't acquire more than 49% because they want the, the factory to run it as a long term themselves, like just create your own ideas, create your own thing. They never their policy is not to go not to take majority shareholder. Who's who's the biggest competitor or, or up and coming threat to Xiaomi then? I think the biggest competitor are a lot of these factories who are doing well on Amazon and, and all these e-commerce store and they have a good s- supply chain already. So that's on a, on a high level, like that's the biggest competitor. But if, if I talk about individual brand, I would say Anchor. Anchor is the uh, uh, competitor. Anchor is even trying to like bring these Chinese companies to like abroad. Then there are like a lot of brands going, building their in-house products as well. Like you have Oppo, OnePlus, of course, Huawei is targeting the, 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 the high-end market. So yeah. there's this competition for sure. Yeah. Okay. Definitely, definitely was competition. So, so let's, let's talk about you, you kind of left engineering and then you joined rock internet. What, what made you want to leave engineering and start on this path of, I guess, the, would this be your first experience in entrepreneurship or did you do something beforehand? Yeah. So I was actually, I, I, I didn't put it in my profile, but, but not a lot of, a lot of people know this, but I was actually in consulting for, for a couple of months. I was, I was in working for Mahindra group is like pretty big in India. Um, their second largest conglomerate. So they have a consulting arm. Mm, So I was, I was in there. They used to call us GLC global leadership cadre. So I was working on Cisco basically the Cisco partnership of Mahindra. So Mahindra makes like a lot of, like they make cars, they make, they have hospitals, they have like everything. And they, they also have telecom, they work with telecom. So I was working on the network side of with Cisco for, for Mahindra group. I, it was good and nice, fancy, but I realized it wasn't for me. It was just too many meetings and too much bull. Yeah, too much bullshit, to be honest, uh, to, yeah. to get things done. It was a good company, like hired good people and all, but stuff just don't get done. And you don't feel like you don't get the sense of like accomplishments and all. So I was pretty sure I wanted to be in startups. Even when I was at Huawei, even though I loved it, I always knew I wanted to eventually land up in a startup. So, yeah, I started applying uh, everywhere. I, I started to see the growth of Southeast Asia quite quite a bit. And yeah, I was applying to Southeast Asia. Mostly I got some interviews and yeah, I got in touch with someone in Rocket Internet and went through that process. And yeah, it was a good experience. What, what, how did you know you always wanted to do entrepreneurship then? I mean, you're an engineer and you worked in communications, big companies. Of course, I, I mean, like, I, I think everyone who has had some exposure to consulting, at least yeah. maybe because my bubbles 
my, my network is, you know, is in a bubble, but like everyone gets disenchanted with consulting. Right. And then yeah, like, yeah. You know, I, there's no impact. I need to do something in my life yeah. that's more meaningful, but you know, be, before consulting, you said you knew you wanted to do entrepreneurship. What was it? So, you know, I, okay. When you're young, you're kind of stupid. I, I, I felt yeah, I like that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was reading, I used to read, I started reading TechCrunch when I was probably in, in my ninth grade. And I, it's, it's kind of like a stupid mentality mentality. I loved reading it. And for me, it was like startups, startups always motivated by it. I got no clue. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, what does it really take? But I knew I wanted to do it. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a stupid aspiration in that sense, which turned out to be good in my case. I'm, I'm really glad uh, I, I did that. I think I would say I knew what I didn't like more than what I really liked. Mm. And I was clear that I did not like meetings. I like being on the ground, <laughs> like talking to people. I, I actually, I did something in sales as well, brief for a brief period after Huawei. And I loved it, even though it was, it was, it was not a real startup experience. I liked it more. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think combination of me reading all these and really liking all that and then knowing that meetings and all are not for me, I, I PowerPoint presentations and yeah. that crap. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, right? I mean, I don't think it's so stupid, right? When you're, I mean, I mean if, especially for entrepreneurship, I think that the, when you're young, that naivety is extremely important. Everyone talks about that all the time, right? Like, if you know too much, you're just not going to do it. Like right now we're old and jaded. Right? Exactly. We're probably not going to yeah. do a lot of things <laughs> where, yeah. you know, where we can break barriers because, you know, we're naive about it, which, you know, we, which is an important thing to unlearn and probably break through going forward. Right. But, you know, I think, you know, it wasn't so stupid to dream. And then I guess the thing I want to ask about that is like, where in India were you in ninth grade? I was in Delhi. Delhi. So you're I, actually I, in New Delhi. I, yeah, I pretty much grew up in Delhi. I spent whole life in, uh, not whole life, but until I was in but India, I youth, spent in yeah. Delhi. Yeah, in my, and then, my so youth. Is, I, is, this, is this common for the youth in high school around that age to be reading TechCrunch? Or were you like the... No, I was the only was one. Ever, you were the only one. <laughs> uh, I would add, I was always like, I like tinkering with stuff. Even when I was like fourth and fifth grade, I remember I was the only one not even fourth. I think I was in my second grade. I was the only one in my whole uh, community who had a computer back then. I, How come? Yeah, I. I don't know. Back in maybe India was not there yet. Which which Can't year was what? this? New Delhi is such a, a wealthy city, right? It is. It is, but but it wasn't. It it okay. It, I mean, it is and it isn't. I understand what you mean. It's just so big. Yeah. How many people are in New Delhi? <laughs> I don't remember now, to be honest. It's, 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 it's embarrassing. but uh, This is your home, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> maybe 50, 25 million, maybe. maybe 35 million. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> 20, 20, 22 million about. 22 million. Okay. Plus million. Not, wasn't yeah. that bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a sizable country in itself, I guess. So I guess yeah, there has yeah, to be a yeah. wide disparity and gap. So you were young. You were interested in tech. The naivety helped you. And then, yeah, and then I guess, like you said, uh, you had a very powerful filter, which is a very useful model. If you don't know, like, if you don't know how to iterate, it's one way to do it. You know, you avoid the things, you know what to say no to. And yeah, then you exactly. can be open to the other opportunities. And that's kind of how, I guess that's how you probably transition to Rocket. How, how did it come onto your radar to apply to Easy Taxi back in the day? Rocket was every like Rocket was the place to Everywhere. be when I was applying. Yeah, it was like back in 2013, 
it was like everywhere. Like it was like applying for McKinsey if you want to do consulting. So of course <laughs> that was my that was my main goal to to go into. Because I mean, Uber and all has good brand and all, but back then Uber wasn't big in Southeast Asia. They hadn't even like entered like most cities back then, correct? Two thousand thirteen. Yeah. So, so Rocket was definitely and yeah, I I actually I started. Of course, I started through my friends asking for referrals, but I started reaching out directly to people in LinkedIn. And okay, yeah, and actually, I reached out to June. And he, how'd you uh, come across his profile? I guess I was. I mean, I knew I wanted to be in Asia, and like June's profile, like was like I found it easily. Maybe he because he was, he was <laughs> very active on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. And he was the funny yeah. thing was he responded right away. Like people would take like three days, two days. Yeah, I I messaged him. He was like, okay, let's get on a call. <laughs> he added my Skype, and we just uh, went on a call. And uh, he gave me some brain teasers, some 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 questions, and uh, we, we probably copied the Uber test, I think. <laughs> so that was a, that was a written test as well. Yeah, he gave me yeah, a written yeah. test uh, later on as well. Yeah, I I was stupid to not copy it. I didn't know it's an Uber question. <laughs> June, <laughs> oh, no, it's an Uber. Yeah. So for the, for the people who don't know, June was our, our guest on episode two. He, he shares some very interesting rocket stories and he had a very interesting path of where he is now. But we also had Sikho on the show, which was working with June directly in Malaysia. And Sikho, like, like you said, is fast. He, he went in for it. He got called the same day he applied. Same day he applied. He was forced to come in the same day. He started working the same day. So Wow. Uh, right. So <laughs> this is that. a... Uh, this is very kind of rocket style, very June style, actually, as well, you know, like the fast, high impact. Yeah. And that's why I guess, you know, rocket spread so fast around the region. That was the, the culture that the Samuel brothers brought to the table, the execution. And the, and one thing they focused on, uh, at least very early on, which I think not many people got was was the, the laser focus on, on hiring you know, and, and doing yeah. that very well, which I guess you got the, the brunt of it. So I guess you passed the test. And then what they, they said, you look like a Filipino, we're going to send you to the Philippines or what happened? <laughs> I think he was thinking between Jakarta, Indonesia, and 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 Philippines. But in Indonesia, there was this girl. No, oh, girl. Usman, okay. and there was who was there was there was some girl there already. And then first I was okay. supposed to be there, and then he got in that girl, and then uh, he was like, "Okay, you to Philippines." And I, yeah, in Philippines they needed a lot of help on drivers. I I don't know during our interview it, it we talked a lot about drivers and all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, right, right. Share in Philippines, man. That was it's a different world. It was yeah. very, uh, from what from the stories I heard, man, it's very challenging, and uh, the quality of drivers was very different from the other parts of the region. So, for sure, yeah. What What was your biggest takeaway from Ride Share then? I loved it. I, to be honest, still I would say my my best memories I, since I I started working are from those days. My biggest take. Man, you gotta do crazy stuff. Like, like yeah. we had a very clear end goal. No matter what it takes, no matter what the society thinks, what people think, uh, just do it. Like, like, like even like going to taxi garages in unsafe regions. Like when you're like in your first day in your uh, in a new like like a new country. Like it was yeah. really really good. Like stuff. Like a lot of stuff we did was in the borderline of like crossing the, the 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 what's legal and what's not legal so so uh, definitely like 
really remember those days. And I think it also helped a lot because we had a strong competitor, Grab, and then Uber came after uh, later on as well. It, that like pushes you even more to like uh, achieve things. <clears throat> yeah. So basically it helped shape, form your, your early foundation, I guess, for the rest of your, your, your venture career, startup career, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I guess after you left, you went to Adobe? Adobe, yeah, yeah. Adobe, Adobe, which was, Adobe. I think, back then, a logistics company that that's not around anymore, yeah. right? Yes, yeah, exactly. So it was a last mile delivery venture, and then it pivoted to bank services for SMEs of, on financial services. Mm. And then now, I think it's not there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's not okay. Sorry. So it's completely gone now, actually. I think it's kind of floating there. I I don't know. I didn't keep up with it. Yeah. I mean, it's very um, fascinating yeah. if you if you if you watch the trends, right? Like we we were at the the golden age peak of rideshare even before it all kicked off globally, right? And then yeah. the next hot thing you saw was logistics, right? And I think yeah, everyone exactly. kind of piled in logistics to a degree. There's only a few players that probably that started at that time who were surviving. I don't know, like Ninja Van, uh, a few other La logistics La guys, Wala Move, well, yeah, that's. Lala move, of course. Yeah, like they were they were starting around that time too. But I think they were already quite successful in China at that point. You know, yes, um, they yes. had a good name in China. At least they were they weren't number one, but they they were definitely rising fast. And then, of course, you know, later on, all the, the platform players are in logistics, Gojek, Grab, right? It's it's part of their network effect and, and what they took advantage of. Exactly. And at the same time, though, at that time, you launched a Airbnb tech company. I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The pillows in space. Yeah. So yeah, pillow and space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually towards the end, I, I worked there, I, Itobi, I worked there for about two years. And then when it start, things started to get very competitive, like you said, like Gojek launched the same service, Grab and all. So we tried pivoting and all. And then I realized it's not going to um, uh, last long. And I was already thinking about like building my own now because this venture, if, yeah, I started it in, in, in Philippines. Also, like I was did in Indonesia as well. But it was, I wanted to do something that I think is it's really my own. And the reason I, I I did the Airbnb one was it was, it came out of my own experience. Like when you're in Southeast Asia, almost everyone like gets to, like travels around a lot because the, every country is like so small. And I, I stayed in a lot of Airbnbs. And what I realized is the level, the consistency of the service in, let's say, a developing country in Airbnb, in any C2C model, I would say, is actually a lot worse than a developed country, let's say in US or, or even Singapore. So I saw an opportunity to like standardize the C2C or Airbnb market. And, and, and that's what we we want, we were doing in, in at Pillar and Space. Yeah. And, and I think you, you got traction. You got to a point where you actually sold the company as well, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it sounds fancy, sold the company, but yeah, I mean, we did sell it to our, our real estate uh, company. And, yeah. but, but the main reason we actually grew quite well, we were doing quite well. We were cash flow positive as well. From early on, I think one, one, one of my learnings from Rocket, I took it is don't spend too much money. Be very mindful of where you spend your money on. And I, I did a good job at that at the same time, like keeping your growth. However, when when we like reached a peak, like after a point of time, it became a lot more operationally inconsistent that I could see like as you keep scaling it, it's hard to maintain that level of standard if you do everything yourself. Unlike 
unlike many ventures because the operational touch points in in a in a in a home and living space in a in a in a travel space or, or let's say in a living space is lot more than compared to like a ride hailing where you connect a driver and that's it it's done here is like yeah. person is staying in your apartment for like 3 days 5 days so it's 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 hard to like keep up that moment and even now until now nobody who has done something similar has been able to like scale it to make it like a big venture there have been a does, lot of them trying does, to do does it. that yeah. does that mean it's not a scalable model because like you're trying to make a very consistent experience across fragmented supply of of yeah. actual ho- homes and hosting right and the the unit economics probably don't scale that nicely is it is it because of that that it doesn't go beyond a certain point it's like a nice multi multi million dollar business at best or it's just people are solving it the wrong way i i don't know if i I I cannot say if it's a wrong way because I don't know what's the right way and I I don't know I I haven't seen anyone doing it but yeah it's probably the first one I I and I, look I, there's a company in China doing the exact same thing Tujia they became a unicorn but then they stopped doing it they now they've completely pivoted they went down yeah. so yeah. so someone who had all the cash and everything they couldn't do it so that tells me maybe there's it's not there Yeah, I feel that's a very Chinese thing too, right? Like, all these guys uh, use a specific idea strategy to raise money on hype, but they they probably know that's not going to last long term. But they they use it to get the mass and scale of the user base, and then they pivot to something more sustainable, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, yeah. I guess. So, so go ahead. Yeah. To answer your question, yeah, the reason is. Imagine like a customer and a guest coming in your apartment, staying in for let's say three days, four days, one week. Yeah. There are so many touch points for an experience. The shower breaks down. Oh, there's the water is not flowing that well. Oh, there's something in the bed. The pillow is not nice. There's just too many operational touch points compared to a car. Where like okay, I get in a car, I I, I reach somewhere else. As long as I read fast, clean enough, the fine. So, so it's it's more challenging. Yes. I see what you mean. Yeah. So, like, if you're comparing to rideshare, improving quality was an early kind of uh, value proposition for for Uber, right? And then it made sense. And then we 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 couldn't grab that advantage because we were full f- fully focused on taxis. And I guess yeah. if you think tra- traditionally, right, the way this is solved for this industry and space is just very capex intensive. You you're a hotel brand, right? You have to have. Yeah. Uh, you're probably renting a building, I guess. But then you know you you. Do all the design and stuff. It's a huge sum cost, and then over time, you know, then it prints cash eventually, assuming yeah. you know, the, the the macro picture is strong enough. And I guess, what, what do you think about what, what do you think about this then? Do you, do you think the correct answer has been co living then, right? Because that in the past few years has been popular, but it also probably hasn't really exploded either, right? It has a lot, has a lot of yeah. funding and ideas, especially like in Singapore where all the money is. Do you think there there's some legs there, or also just wasting their time is just going to be capped at a smaller market? I think I think it's a good cash making business, but yeah, it's it's end of the day, it's like running a traditional branded chain. To be honest, that's yeah. that's what I've seen. A lot of companies have tried to add tech into it, like adding like like a, a community, like an online community, gamify it and all. But yeah, it's it's a traditional good money business. However, co living, I definitely think is a good. regardless it's a tech or not it's a good future forward of course like people are migrating to cities spaces are getting more expensive uh, much more expensive than the salaries are increasing and also co living makes sense and people it's it's becoming more connected world so it it's it's i think it it's it makes sense for sure 
So you, so you actually think there's uh, more, well, I'm not sure about tech, but there's definitely more of a community idea in co-living. For, for sure, for sure. Yeah, that's a, that's have, a big. Have, have you tried living in co-living or are you hearing this from friends or why, why do you say this? I have lived in uh, co-living. Yes, I have. It's and <clears throat> see the thing is all these this this homes and all were traditionally def- like made for f- like it's it it wasn't defined for individual people at that price point and community living actually helps you with that. So of course people are getting more connected and all, but then the second value prop you get is like, it helps you reduce your price quite a lot. One of the biggest challenges for migrants to move to like, let's say these, these tier one series is the pricing and community living like helps you reduce that price quite a lot. Mm. So, so what you're saying is then it's, it's, it seems that it's targeted for at least one, one niche or one segment is the, is the migrant workers. And I guess another aspect would be what expats. Yes, expats as well. Yeah, single people, uh, entrepreneurs like trying to connect with like by entrepreneurs, I mean like freelance entrepreneurs, like really small entrepreneurs trying to like get into like ecosystems and uh, things mm. like that. Yeah, which probably at this point has kind of uh, been capped at the knees because of COVID and the pandemic, right? So less oh. less travelers, uh, even probably less migrants because a lot of the borders interstate are even closed, right? Yes, um, yes, definitely. So I guess we're gonna, but I mean, like with the vaccine on, on the horizon and what, what my friends are in travel, they're seeing bookings from, from December being shifted to January and, and almost back to, you know, half of what they saw back to normal levels. So we're expecting a really big bounce back. So we'll, we'll see if that, you know, that trend continues or not, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope I want to travel, start traveling in Southeast Asia soon. So. Yeah, I'm bad. sure. I know you're itching. Yeah. So then after Pillows in Space, you kind of exited, right? You know, prob- probably mm. a, something decent, you know, but, you know, not. Yeah. It's uh, enough where you're not, you know, you're, you're probably not saying F you to the next opportunity, but it's good enough, right? It's some changes, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you, you went through the process of probably trying to launch quite a few ideas, right? Uh, or probably one, one idea, which was initially called Salex, then which pivoted into Reach. Yeah. So actually, yes. Yes. So that actually came out of pillow and space as well. Like one of the big challenges when we were doing pillow and space was uh, uh, B2B basically getting the supply, building the supply side and okay. the reach tried to solve that. And almost every marketplace, the bigger, cha- biggest challenge is getting supply side. We were trying to solve that. It didn't work out. Yeah. Yeah. So actually it was interesting because you followed uh, pretty good advice, actually. So you had an actual pain point in, in something you knew really well, right? Because you were trying to build up pills in space and you found another problem while trying to build pillows in space where, you know, building supply through a kind of like a, to build a supply, then you thought like of building a platform for B2B sales and scaling that, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And how, how come that didn't work out then? <clears throat> so... Yes. So, 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 so it was a B2B supply for like, regardless of industries, but we were targeting like SMEs because a lot of startups were focused on onboarding SMEs from fintech, restaurant startups, uh, or delivery ventures. It did not work out because our platform was designed to like reduce the time to onboard a supplier. So it was a paper reply, uh, paper reply platform to to acquire businesses and the payment wasn't like actual payment it used to go as credits to them which they could reuse to acquire others so we were trying to building that that credit community system 
and what we realized eventually was people were people actually felt the process of building that that relationship with those supply side actually is really valuable and if you do like it's it it there's no quick fix into it like okay you click and then you onboard someone that yeah. that way of doing thing was not correct and there were like a lot of different a uh, lot of smaller reasons too like the the, the awkwardness around these things so yeah i would say like it was more about the human reason why it didn't work out like how humans interact with each other basically if you're trying to build a, a marketplace on supply side uh, especially ones like uber it requires a lot of high interaction and it's not as scalable which is why we were on the ground going one to one a lot i guess so i guess in 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 your understanding and no, knowledge of the space no one has really kind of solved a good platform that can scale supply side as a saas platform no none there I, yeah there's none there's one company in 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 germany they they were doing pretty well but then they fell flat afterwards like they raised i think they went series b and mm. they went they went flat afterwards mm. okay and then so from there i think you know you're probably you worked on that for quite a long time right like two years yeah yeah two years yeah so then i guess you know you're a little bit burned out from that then the Yes, yeah. I think you know, we we talked back at that point in time then you were applying to to work for this company and and the was also a marketplace but also kind of in fashion and supply chain, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which was yeah. The, which eventually became the studio. Yes. So this Yeah. Really like a decent sized company. It's it it wasn't a small startup. Yeah. So yeah, I applied and yeah, I I I joined actually I joined them to lead their growth side. I I joined as a VP of growth first. So I, I moved to San Francisco, growing their customer side of things, but it was more about like launching new ways to to get more customers than like just digital marketing or or partnerships. So we launched a couple of ideas to 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 get to onboard like bus- businesses or customers at at scale. One of them worked out pretty well, and yeah, after that. If you want me to talk about like my, how I moved back from San Francisco to Shenzhen, I'm happy to share that as well. Well, but so before we move forward, what exactly is the studio? Okay, yeah. So studio is an it's an on-demand manufacturing platform, and basically they specialize on low MOQ. Uh, MOQ means like minimum order quantities order quantity, for yeah. Uh, yeah minimum order quantities for SME small to large businesses in US. We are actually uh, Studio was uh, is the largest uh, patch making company and then caps and all like it, it's a decent size. So the the problem we were sol- solving is a lot of these businesses they want to make their own merchandising and they have a really hard time finding factories. <clears throat> to to create like a small moq orders for them and it's a long process even if they are able to find it so with studio like everything was tech actually everything happened through the platform and everything a whole design whole order dispatchment placement used to happen through our platform and people could like the businesses could place even 10 orders 50 orders 30 orders oh, so small and we have yeah really small orders i mean i'm not saying people did 50 orders i'm just telling you like 30 It's is the minimum but people yeah. yeah people could people would place like 300 400 where the industry average is like 10000 50000 orders yeah. so our customers were like small instagram to like big even nike and like uh, google and all like they were our customers as well google uber uh, stanford and all like for their merchandising so yeah i mean that's that's what the company did 
I started with customer side and then moved on to the operation side. So customer on. side would be onboarding all the people who need mer- so that the niche was start like you're, you started in cornering like merchandising essentially for, for corporates. So when you say customers, you had to basically find customers who needed these kind of products for merchandising and had had a pain point where they had no way to get small MOQs based out of China. Yes, I, I, I would only say I would only add my me specifically, my role was more about launching new initiatives within the company that helps them grow more sales. So they already had a head okay. of sales already. So like, I'll give you an example. One of the things we launched was like just sending free samples to like influencers and let them see like if they like it and then they promote it and then they can order more. So that was one of the initiatives we launched. So, so things like these that can help them scale faster. Yeah, yeah. In, in a sense, what I'm what I'm hearing is they had a good product market fit. They had a channel that was working. They kept doubling down on that, but they were looking to probably expand their marketing horizon, get more channels to to continue growth. And and your yeah. your goal was probably to optimize and test and you know control the experiments to to kind of unlock more growth for more customers at first. At least when you moved to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long were you in San Francisco? Not long, actually. Uh, less than a year. Yeah, less than a year. Is it as bad as everyone says? It's, it's, I mean, it, it has a lot of good things about it. Overall, it was, it, I liked it actually, but uh, yeah, I liked it. I mean, probably, I would say probably I, because you were passing through, but like, I, I really don't get yeah. this conception of, of what I see on Twitter and reading the media, uh, you know, the drug problem, the homelessness, the, the incompetence oh, yeah. <laughs> of, of, of government. And, and when I visited, you know, I could see small elements, but also I was just visiting through, right? So, but like, I, I just, like, I don't know, like, I'm not too sure if people are just complaining about, like, an, it's an ivory tower <laughs> problem, right? Like, you're in this great city, things yeah, are looking yeah. pretty good. Of course, they're very expensive, there is inequality. But I mean, like, I, I would have to imagine around the world, there's way more incompetent governments yeah. and worse situations. I don't know, you're from India, you got to tell me, like, that's that's a stereotype <laughs> that we hear about certain cities, right? Like, yeah, exactly. No, you're you're absolutely right. I think a lot of things we hear about San Francisco or other cities is... Uh, it's it. Those are, to be honest, first world problems. They're yeah, okay. not real problems. All right. All right. <laughs> so yeah, I, I liked it actually. It was a good experience to be okay. there. Yeah. Yeah. So so you actually got to work in the valley and the co-founding team. Good, solid. Doing yes, something correct. Yes. The, the, yes. The CEO is 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 good. Uh, I I had a good time there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess they moved you to Shenzhen. Yeah. So actually during this time, also what also happened was our, the guy who was running our Shenzhen office, he quit without like in a very short uh, notice. And we, my CEO was trying to hire someone to run the, the, the operations here. And it just happened. Like I actually always wanted to get some experience in China. Mm. So I just saw it as a good opportunity. I mean, of course he asked me like, you've never worked in China. You have no, you cannot even (laughs) speak Mandarin. (laughs) You're not Chinese. And on top of it, I have no manufacturing experience and all, but it was more about like making him believe that it's more, I mean, I, I, I think like when you work in like so many different industries, like thinking on the ground, it's it's like getting stuff done, like then having those preconceived no- notions uh, about like what works, what work doesn't work. So yeah, I mean, he eventually agreed and I, I moved here. Yeah, it was a really good decision. Yeah. I, uh, I loved it. Yeah. W- when we were talking back then, which was, let me check out the year, back in, was this 2019? Uh, yes. 
Yes. Were, were you, were, so we, we talked a lot about marketplace and the theory of marketplace and how to solve marketplace, right? Was this for this job or was it for a different company? Oh, I think it was for a different company. Oh, it was for a different company. Okay, okay. Was any of that relevant for the interview process for the studio or? No, it was, studio was very different. Studio is like, it has, actually, maybe yes. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe the, yeah, I think some things were, yeah. Yeah, well, because the, the reason, like, so for, for the context, for the guests something, who are listening, yeah. sorry, for the audience who's listening, you know, I, I kind of want to get to the point where, you know, we, we have a lot of practical experience in marketplace, but there's also a lot of theoretical stuff that you read about that you always want to try and, and apply. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of curious for San Francisco company, how much of this actually comes up in the interview process or even for the other company, which I think was an Indian company that was a marketplace too, which was really big, right? Yeah, how yeah, much yeah. of this actually comes in, into the interview, which aspects, and is that really relevant? And then especially, you know, I like to know how to connect that to your actual execution work once you're in. Once you're in, I don't think it works. It theory works. <laughs> Not at all. So they just want to see how you think or like, why, why do they bring like, you know, like how, you know, all these concepts of what you, you know, why, why, did talk, why, why test you about things that you're never going to be practically using? I think, I mean, one thing is to, of course, yeah, how you think about it. And can you think as a framework, even though you might not apply it, but at least yeah. your framework is not fucked up. It's not non-logic. It's not illogical, right? So yeah. it needs to make sense. I think that's what they're looking for. I, in the interview process, it it helped a bit, but I would say it was, the interview overall was more about like on the spot, like if this situation happens, then what would you do? They, okay. the, the, they depth, like it didn't matter what I know or what works doesn't. Mm. It's just like, if this fucked up, it, this gets fucked up, what do you do? So yeah. that's what mattered. Okay. So and that's I, I and I think that matters. That's actually that helps in, yeah. in, in on your day-to-day execution. So so would you say the process for interviewing, uh, at least for the studio, it was a good process and it made sense? Yes, definitely. And I had at least seven interviews. Well, seven. <laughs> I had okay. Yes. It was really like a long process, three months, seven interviews, meeting, and yeah. Uh, 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 two case studies, uh, really long case studies. Yeah. Okay. And then, so let's, uh, I want to move away from that then. What the studio is solving is very unique for China because they're, they're holding the world supply in terms of manufacturing, right? Yeah. So is their thesis correct? Does it scale very big to a venture company where you're getting like a thousand X or I don't know, how do you feel about where it's heading? I think the the products that Studio is doing, like which is their patches and lapel pins, this is like they're really good at. It's a small market. It's yeah. not a big market and they have a good stronghold in it, I, I must yeah. say. So they carved out a good niche strong market. They did a good job, yeah. but it's not, a, it's not something they can rely on for long term. Yeah. So definitely they need to find out different ways to like get to to like go to next level i would say and i think that's what we were doing as well within studio uh, to 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 scale it to next level for a different for either different kind of products or different way of doing how we are doing it so how does world, so what, what is the next big thing how does the world benefit from having access to directly to manufacturing from china sorry repeat your question again 
Right. So um, what, what is, so like, because you're going to get to, you have to get to the next level, right? Because they yeah, have a yeah. niche, which is traditionally and technically theoretically correct, right? So you own the niche. They raised, I think, Series A, like 11 million or something, at least yeah, publicly. Yeah. So, yeah. but then, you know, to get to Series B, it's it's about the, I think, the revenue at that point, right? So they, they already have, the team is good. The idea is good. The traction is there, right? So now they kind of have to just get to a bigger market. So what is the next thing and how does the world benefit from having access to direct manufacturing from China? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah to be, I'll be honest with you. I think this is the problem that everybody's trying to solve, including Alibaba. And okay. no, nobody has really solved it. I would, I, I can talk about like what has changed in last 10 years, then like what opportunity exists. And to be honest, that opportunity I'm trying to solve. I can talk about it later. I'm trying to solve yeah. now. Alibaba is trying to do it. Amazon is actually trying to do it. I, I'm happy to discuss about that. I learned so much about like what everybody's trying to solve and nobody has really done it. Now, a couple of things that has changed for sure is factories have started. It used to be like customers tell us what they need and factories used to make it. Yeah. And it used to, it it did not, like the end quality of the product was not always the perfect but like customers had to get involved a lot more to come up with a final good product. And what has changed in last 10, 15 years is like now factories are actually coming up with their own product, which is very good quality. And they can actually sell it direct to customers. Mm. And because and, and they are they are actually at the forefront of trend as well. Like factories have like in China, they have gotten like so sophisticated in terms of what they can do. Second, they can see what the trend is, like whatever it's going, and they come up with the product like really fast and a really good quality. Mm. So what that that landscape has changed is like now rather than thinking factory as a B2B, B2B2C business, which by most of the marketplaces did like Lazada's or Amazon and all. Now a lot of companies are going direct to customers now. Mm. Basically factories selling direct to customers. So you see a huge surge of direct to consumer startups right now, like a lot of direct to consumer yeah, startups have become, you know, yeah, D2C basically. That's one. Second, Amazon set up their so-called factory onboarding team in, in Shenzhen in the last five years. And they're all they do is like they just sell directly from uh, from factories, uh, from products from China to and customers ra- rather than individual distributors in, 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 in U.S. AliExpress is doing something similar. Same. Yeah. Every time yeah. I order from Lazada, it's I suspect, you know, they don't say it's safe from China, but then it's probably coming from the factory a bit. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, all like Lazada, Shopee and all like they all are like putting a lot of resources to get onboarding in fact in in factories now rather than sellers. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that trend has definitely changed. Second, I would say like products have gotten like I was saying, like you can buy sophisticated products now. By sophisticated, I mean like difficult design, a lot of like uh, turns, paints, stitches or even tech gadgets and also China has gotten like really good at it. And so I guess what you're saying is the studio kind of falls in this where they're a part of the story of trying to solve it. They have their niche, man, but like it sounds kind of scary the way you phrase it. If all the big guys are going for this, either they, they own that niche and hopefully get acquired or, or they, they, they somehow could get find a solution faster to hop to the next horizontal market to get to more mass and then get acquired. I guess it sounds like that would be the, the play, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I think, I think, yeah, basically, I don't know if they want to acquire or they want to go like really big, compete against everybody. I, that's, we'll see. But yeah, I mean, okay. uh, basically big players are trying it. Smaller ones are trying it. I, I can say like, maybe if you try to solve a, like a n- small niche problem within that big opportunity, which Amazons and Alibaba's yeah. might have already, then it's probably your likelihood of success is probably more. Yeah, and then so with with this in mind, you know, and I think what what we're t- basically touching upon is next generation e commerce, right? It, we're we're talking about you know if you look at terms of penetration of e commerce and, and also even internet, I mean, there's there's still billions and billions of people who who need to get on to to internet and e commerce alone, right? So, and you know, I, I think this is the next evolution. What you're talking about, and what does that mean then in terms of next gen manufacturing? Does China become very capitally intensive and invest all the capex to unlock this further, or do we start diversifying away from China and it becomes more fragmented, or, or do you see China not changing ever and people will always be stuck to China? Yeah, so we actually, I, I used to come across this thinking a lot as well. It's a very good question to ask. I think for sophisticated products, I don't think outside China, anybody has a capacity to do it. But if you're talking about mass like T-shirt, shirts and all, yes, the, 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 the labor is cheaper outside. They have gotten good as well. Like they can turn, turn out faster products. Yeah. Okay. But I'll add, I'll add one thing and super important is that one thing a lot of people should need to remember is end of the day, a lot of raw material actually comes from China. So even if you're manufacturing something in Vietnam or Indonesia or Colombia somewhere, they will probably be sourcing the raw material from China. China's basically gone full stack, and which is why they have one belt, one road, why they have their feet in Africa, the resources yeah. that they need to grow that, that, that burgeoning population and, and, and to continue to feed the supply chain for their, their own social contract, right? Okay, also, so, yeah, so go ahead. One, one thing I'll add is like, like everything is moving high-tech, right? Like batteries are like the most important thing for all these, most of these high-tech, everything is moving portable and all. So China owns more than 70% of world's lithium. So wow. no matter what, you have to rely on China. Yes, which is probably why Elon needs to be friends with the, the government there and why Tesla yeah. is quite quite prevalent in, in all around China when I visited, right? Un- unless um, there's a new battery technology then you, which decouples you from lithium, that's a different story then. And yeah. I guess that's, uh, you know, from, from the perspective of America, that's what hopefully they, they can unlock them. They're, they're usually good at that stuff, right? So... <laughs> so then you, you lived in India, China, Shenzhen, right? Philippines yeah. for a long time, Singapore yeah. a little bit, the, the Silicon Valley a little bit in California. Well, what's your favorite Indonesia. thing so far? Oh, Indonesia, Indonesia Jakarta as well, yeah. 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 So you've been all over the place. Where, where's your favorite place <laughs> and why? Wow, it's very hard to... So I love living in Shenzhen. I love it here. I liked San Francisco as well. Yeah. I think... I liked working in Singapore. I would add working in Singapore, like the kind of people you meet there and all like this. It's, it's just a good hotbed of innovation and all. I like Jakarta and Philippines as well. <laughs> you like <laughs> it's everything. <hard>. And <laughs> it's, it's just different stage of my life. I would say like now, I, for me, if you ask me like right now, yeah. I think Shenzhen or San Francisco, both are, I, I like both. The right place to be for for your current stage and actually what you're probably trying to solve, right? Yeah, yeah. What what would have shocked you the most so far about China when you first moved over or or even now? 
Man, it's a fascinating country. I like living here. Like I wasn't expect. I thought I'll have a lot of friction from language. People maybe not like I. I'm maybe not getting as friendly with people, or everything would be way more difficult for me. So it was actually surprisingly easy. People were super nice. Everybody's helpful. I love. I. I. It was frictionless. And when I was moving here, people were like, "Man, you're moving to China! Wow!" <laughs> so, so, it's, so it's a lot more international than probably people think, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's one second, which was even bigger shock. Is like, I think China or Shenzhen is probably, in terms of tech, probably ten years ahead of San Francisco, to be honest. Wow. Like the way everything works. Yeah. Way and 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 uh, and and mind you, I'm talking. I'm saying San Francisco. And I'm not saying a tier three city in US. I'm saying like one of the yeah. top cities in US. So I'm, in terms of tech, I think the way everything works here. Of course, everybody knows about payments, but that's that's a really small part of it. Like the way they use facial recognition, recognition technology, the oh, everything. Like it's just miles ahead. Yeah, so I mean, that's it's far more advanced than people realize. I guess it's yeah. it's also a different universe. Like, how how do you get along with the different technology ecosystem? Like, you can't use Google, you can't use yeah. <laughs> uh, any anything. It's like when I visited, man, you're completely off the grid, which is wild. You're just like yeah. disconnected from like the rest of the world. Has that been hard to adjust to? It wasn't. It wasn't hard uh, to be honest. It wasn't that hard. It was different, but I, I'll add one thing. So I actually in January, so this year January, I, I went to Turkey just to travel, and I felt life is so different. Like I could use Google, whatever I want. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. to, I had to carry a wallet all the time with me, <laughs> my ID card, and all. It felt so different. So uh, you really became Chinese, man. <laughs> man i yeah my, yeah i use wechat stickers pretty well these days so pe- people say like if you can if you do that you're real chinese <laughs> yeah yeah so so basically then how how so like with your experience with china and growing up in india how how would you compare the two different worlds then for especially for an outsider who's no context of asia at all yeah yeah I think I think there are few commonalities, and then there are a lot of differences as well. The commonalities are like you see, people are hungry to do something. Like people, like be it India or or China, people are not laxed or or laid back. They want to do something, make a name for themselves, make up, make a good business. And that comes out of being like being both of being places being populous and and people competing against each other. That's one. I think culturally they are quite similar too. Like really like being family oriented. It's it's it's. I I don't see them that different in 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 that sense. In terms of differences, quite a lot actually. The way so India is a democratic country, right? Like so, a lot of things are like. It's not a homogeneous country. It, actually, it has less to do with democracy. It's more about like people, India is not a homogeneous uh, society. Like you, you go hundred miles and people speak different language, different uh, food, and all. So it's 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 
it's it's very very different uh, like every mile you go every 100 mile you go but in china yes it's it's also quite different actually if you if you travel between provinces but still like at least people speak mandarin everywhere so that part is 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 something i i i see is quite different and i think china is quite well run it's it's very well run like uh, the infrastructure technology even if you go to tier 2 3 cities like things are quite well managed india can be like really good like really like not so good yeah. so <laughs> and, and that comes from like the way india is and why yeah. china is so so that's that's i think they both come with their benefits and not so benefits but that's the difference i see in terms of like overall like our def- china is definitely like ahead in terms of like technology and then overall like people living standards and all for sure yeah yeah and then have all these places you lived you know mm. across southeast asia us china where where's the place you've experienced the most racism i think india india your own <laughs> your own home country which goes back to your I, point it goes back to your point about china and how there's some unifying factor with the language and maybe that's rooted in their history right but india you you go a few hundred miles is different right just completely different is that is that related yeah i see the thing is southeast yeah yeah exactly like San Francisco has still a lot of Indians like in fact if you're Indian you're actually like probably smart making a lot of money and all that like that's that's the perception they have yeah. but I I never saw I never felt anything in SF in 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 China it's not racism but it's more like oh you're a foreigner so it's not good or bad it's just uh, you're always a foreigner you're outside yeah it's 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 different like people treat you like people treat you like nicely but it's like okay you're a foreigner so they'll, they 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 try to adjust themselves accordingly which i actually mm-hmm. really appreciate and it's i never felt anything like racist like a anti non chinese yeah. malice. Uh, yeah. malice no not at all even though like india china has uh, i don't know the relationship <laughs> how is it going but people have been like people actually make fun of it they're like oh this is happening in india what do you think yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. it people have been like super nice and cool about it it's fine it's good Like where yeah. you got the most discrimination then? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> when you, yeah, India has their own biases as well. But look, I, the thing is, I was also young, much younger, so it also depends the stage of you're in. I was less mature about stuffs, and also maybe I don't know, man. I, I, I get, but if you ask me, yeah, I, I remember India has been more racist for me. I mean, it could have just been personality and. and- probably yeah like people in india have things against like north indians like i because oh, i okay. basically so so that's that was one second is i'm a bengali so people think bengali guys are maybe they're mama boys they think they're they're intellectual smart but they're boring interesting i think I that. yeah be, being a bengali maybe not so much but being a north indian if you travel to like south india yeah i i it was they yeah i felt like people were trying to judge me and like trying to put me down for some things you know yeah very, very fascinating i mean like i know in <laughs> vietnam you have this uh, distinction between north central and south but there's still this unifying idea of always being vietnamese you know um, uh, but they will make fun of each other for it but i, I never it's never like a hard discrimination i felt at least you know so that's interesting contrasting experience <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah okay so the last topic you know like we i kind of set you up for this you know if we follow your career engineer to to rocket getting your feet in entrepreneurship having an, a small exit and then even starting companies that failed right and now i guess we, you initially you were a little bit hesitant to talk about this but you i guess <laughs> yeah 
on paper, right, you call yourself co-founder of this idea, Nevo, Nevo? Ne- Nevo, yeah, yeah. Nevo, Nevo, right? Yeah. But of course, you know, what we're going to do is own up to it and say it's, it's, it's nothing right now, but it's like it had some rough and tumble beginnings. But I, I kind of wanted to you know, walk through your thoughts about how does a founder, an entrepreneur think about starting a new company and then also, you know, having a company that didn't work out after Rocket, right? And then also now having trouble getting started up. You know, we'll talk about some of your experiences and your thoughts around that. And also in the context of it being in Shenzhen and what you're trying to solve too, which I think is interesting. So I think what I realized over like last so many years is it's always about the journey and not about the destination. And I just love the journey. I, I love yeah. building things. And I, I I know it hasn't been successful yet. It's okay. Like I I, I just I just love the process of like building things. That's why I want to do this again. The reason I <laughs> I was I wasn't confident I, I I didn't want to talk about it is to be honest we haven't defined exactly what what pain point we are solving and there's a reason behind it. Back then it was more about like just getting on the ground like whatever idea whatever you have just invalidate and get off the ground as fast as possible but like just start scaling scaling scaling. And now I'm being more mindful and actually, even before I call something as a venture, I'm really trying to like go deeper into customer pain points, taking my time. Mm. It doesn't have to be like in next one month, I need to raise this money and that money. Correct. So yeah, I'm just taking my time to be honest. I think if you want to build something good, it takes time. It's sustained. If you want to build something sustainable, it, it takes time. But, but mm. I feel like a lot of the theory goes around global, like everywhere is like, do fast or break things, make things. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense once you have a direction. But before that, don't Correct. try to like scale it. Try spend yeah. your time in finding a direction. So I'm I'm trying to do that right now. And during this whole process, there were some challenges. It was more about co-founder relationships. So because I'm in Shenzhen, like of course it makes sense to like have a local partner. And then I have I I have someone like we were three co-founders. I had the third one was actually outside. He was based in Singapore and also San Francisco. And yeah, it was more relationships between us that kind of didn't work out. One got dropped out. The other one, if you want me to talk in detail, happy to talk about it. But basically two co-founders did not get well along to get well along together. And even though we started something and that was a big factor to like go back and forth between who's doing yeah. what and, and where the direction is heading. So one one of my learnings has also been like, just go by yourself rather than trying to forming a team first. Just go ahead and people will join you in your journey on the way. And yeah, that's, 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 yeah. that's, I mean, I'm happy. Yeah, go ahead. How, how long? So you left the studio and how long have yeah. you been in, in this process of everything you're talking about? How long has it been? Yeah, actually, when I left studio, I, I traveled around China for like three and a half months. I just wanted what, what to take J- July, August, July, August, September. Of 2020? Yes, yes, this year, this year. Okay, so then the past few months. So then you kind of been on this journey of uh, figuring out what you want to do. And I think well, I think some important things that you're pointing out, and I don't know, I don't know. It's a function of because we're older now, or we have more experience. But I, I especially with the podcast and the platform, how I want to develop it, I've had a very much similar approach. Mm. You know, just focus on really, at least for me, focus on really good, high quality first. You know, engaging content that you really care about, 
at least make sure you care about it first and also the guests care about it and then see what the audience cares about too, right? And it's more about, you know, exploring that, figuring out the pain points first and figure out what you want to solve first or talk about first, which is, I think, very important, you know, because I think, especially when you're younger, I mean, there are two ways to solve, you know, ideas or problems, right? You could chase the idea that you think of how the world should be, which could be wrong, right or wrong. You could iterate to nothing if it's, you know, not the right idea or you just take all the wrong steps. Or if you're lucky, maybe you, you pivot to the right thing, right? And that's just kind of building up the idea of what you think. The other one is, you know, what you did with uh, Pillow and Space uh, or um, Reach, right? You, you found a pain point and you build up from that pain point. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's like, I think what you're saying is, you know, instead of just, you know, t- you know, especially even though it's tempting, you know, because there's a lot of money now in the market. I think there's too much money chasing too few mm-hmm. good good ideas, right? There's a lot yeah. of people are getting funded, but I don't know where it's going to go. But, you know, I think your, your your process sounds right, you know, like, and I think we talked about this maybe one or two years ago, but like when you wanted to do like D2C and get it kicked off being based in Shenzhen, but uh, it's like really taking the time to find out what you want to solve. Uh, is it from a pain point, you know, talking to actual potential customers based off your hypothesis, right? And then, you know, forming something yourself, or, you know, if you have a co-founder, even better, form it together. But then, you know, no rush, you know, then, then you know, like you said, once you have a direction, it definitely makes sense to actually then bring more people on board. Because I remember I was approached by, you know, I won't say names, but like, you know, other friends in the past, they say, mm-hmm. come join this idea. Like, but then you have to join and believe the idea. But like, you know, yeah. you didn't build anything to convince me, you know. So then, of course, it's never going to work out when you join a venture this kind of way, right? Exactly. Absolutely. But it sounds like, and, and I think the other part then is, you know, I, I would like to hear more about how you think about these kind of founder conflicts, right? On on, hmm. on one hand, I think getting that founder co- foundation is, is, is pivotal, especially this early on. Whether you form the idea first or with the team, right? I think both are okay. But then, you know, how did you, it sounds like there was conflicts. You know, what, what are the conflicts? Is it because of a difficult person or just, you know, culture or what are you seeing? And then how, how do you think about resolving that and uh, getting it right going forward? Okay. So there were two reasons. One was clarity on what the end goal looks like. That was different to between the other two co-founders. One why, why is that so sorry just to cut you off. Why, why is that so yeah. important when it's so early on though? So by by vision, by clarity of vision, I mean I don't mean like the I don't mean like the pain point we are trying to solve, but more like what clarity of vision in like, what am I in it for? Am I in it for mm. to make money? I see. Am I in it for to build a venture? Uh, aligning values, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a better way to put it. Aligning values probably is, 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 is very important. And it was not aligned, I would say, for one of the person. And... Yeah. So that's a very good that's a very good point then. Like early stage when you're getting co-founders together, when when should this conversation happen? Or is it a conversation or how does it come about? I mean, I think a lot of times people luck out because and a lot of a lot of people in podcasts will talk about how, how you should get a founder. It's like someone you should know from some time, you have some experience with them, else, you know, from college, you know them, right? Or something like this. And I think the reason why they suggest that is because because your values tend to align better if you've known them for a while, mm. right? So what do you think, though, if at this early stage, you're looking for a local partner, you had another partner who's outside of China, mm-hmm. do you need to have an official conversation before you start? Or how does that work? I think, yeah, we did have the conversation, but I think like really going deep into like why 
he's doing what he's doing and why do i really want him for that that's so that's super important and i'll add one more thing i think a lot of time what people tend to do is like they have the wishful thinking so even though the person tells me okay i'm here i want to make good money i'm i'm just saying it in a very plain direct way but let's say he he makes his vision clear to me but because i want that guy i try to fit him fit him or her into my whatever <laughs> yeah your narrative place he wants to be yeah. yeah so that's that's very that's that's very dangerous i think i like try to like not have wishful thinking as much as possible yeah and that that happens when you like yeah i mean i i can just say that i would say yeah i mean i you know this theme comes up a lot especially in entrepreneurship i l- was literally talking yesterday with another person who had to have an employee let go or he left or some 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 version because it was a difficult situation in my mm-hmm. own experience as well just having difficult situations and people on board and and what happens is you know that there is some misalignment and you know it's it's a very painful kind of process where you have to kind of break apart or you know things don't work out but i think it's definitely part of the journey but i think if you can get to a place where it's uh, well understood beforehand and if you see it recognize that you address it right away it makes things smoother mm-hmm. or at least you cut out the parts where less pain down the road and you kind of take the losses earlier right yeah 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 I so and then, then I, I I would also add like don't settle don't like don't have a goal of having a co-founder uh, that's one of the things I'm also like uh, I'm, I'm feeling like don't the goal should not be to help get a co-founder but goal should be to like still build your venture and don't settle like if you think things something is not aligned just keep looking for like keep yeah. looking for more co-founders yeah and the the other thing i like that you said was when you're in that difficult situation or with a difficult person and again remember a difficult person is just your perception of that person in that situation right it's, they also have probably yeah. the same view of you right so it's, it's kind of a yeah. two-sided thing where you got to get to the middle where there's common ground and understanding right but what what i like is that what what you mentioned that is very important to remember is when you're in that situation with that difficult person you don't want to lie to yourself and say like oh i need a co-founder i'm going to keep him on or if i give it time it's going to get better or i need yeah. to give this person space to develop himself it's usually not the case you need to address it right away and i think yeah. a lot of founders will make that mistake instead of not taking it head on it festers and it'll blow up later right so i think that that's a very good point you pointed out that you know it's you know those biases you have to be aware of and don't lie to yourself about those situations right and it's hard to see the truth because you always tunnel vision because you you want to have your end goal and um you're trying to fit it to your narrative which is probably yeah. instead of trying to see the actual truth right so that that's a tough one so so i guess the last question then would be around you know informing a new startup we talked about the people part at least for early stage in the founders how do you think about the product and the market especially in the context of what you're doing now in Shenzhen so is how do you think around forming the product you know what should it look like and then how do you go about thinking you know is there a market for this mm. so one of my learnings actually from doing my previous startup has always been don't select an idea or even if no matter even if the idea is correct right don't go after an idea but go after an industry which for sure is like growing then it's very easy for you to pivot within that industry like whatever you want to do so i i like for sure like i was saying like there has been some trends 
that's pretty much everybody's trying to solve. So I'm sure like I want to be in that industry. And in terms of product, again, this part is super hard as well. I was initially doing like trying to like find products that customers don't, let's say they cannot find on Amazon and basically coming up with those kind of products. But eventually I realized it doesn't matter if it's on Amazon or not. It doesn't matter if they can find it on Amazon or whatever it is. What matters right now is what pain point the customer is facing, whatever he's doing, whatever, what kind of, whatever kind of product he's trying to like buy or do. So I'm going back to the basics and like just talking to like an ideal customer and collecting like all the pain points that can have that's relevant to that industry, of course. And based on that, like think backwards to like what kind of product should I come up with? Okay. So, so the, at least in terms of product, right? So you, you've had some struggles with getting a team together, but I think more or less like once you figure out the direction, right? So basically you're, you're thinking about industry, you're thinking about product, you're talking to customers. At least you will be able to probably bring someone on board eventually. I think the, the team probably would be good enough with your network and who you know, right? Product yeah. is, you know, by be, being very customer centric and at least you're building something from something real or at least something that you could test at something real. So that say you get the pain point from a customer, you build a little MVP or you build a product for them and you actually put it in their face. The question is, will they buy it or not? Right. Yeah. And it's, it's coming. And then, you know, then you will see whether or not the customer was, was actually just saying things or you got the interpretation wrong. Then you could tweak it again until you probably get to them to actually buy that. And then you probably find the next customer. So that, I guess that's how you can think about forming product is by, by being very customer centric and talking to them and then going back from what you gathered, then designing it and then moving forward. And then I guess the last piece was how does this fit? Like, how, like so say, say you talk to a customer and you form a product and he's willing to buy it, but how do you know if the market's big enough in the right industry that you, like you're talking about earlier? I think for me now, I am actually, I care more about the I, I, to be honest, I care less about market uh, market size right now because I feel getting from zero to one is the most important thing. I can always like like align to like go into bigger market, but it's a zero to one, no matter how big or small the market is, is the biggest challenge. And even if it's a small market for me, if I'm able to reach that level, I can figure it out, like reaching the the bigger market in in that sense. And and the, the, oh, well, then I guess yeah. The one thing I'll add is one thing I'll add is it's it's kind of given like the smaller the market is, less competition you have. The bigger the market is, more competition you have. So both have their positives and negatives, in my opinion. And I I personally like just tend to favor. I don't know small or big. How should I call it? But like where there's less competition, yeah. even if it comes at a expense of small market, I'm okay with that. I mean, I think what you're saying is there's a lot of correct things you're saying. Like you, I mean, why 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 jump straight into competition you know, when when you don't have to? It's possible, but I guess that the question of big or small is quite important because that ties to what is your end goal. Then I guess, and like I think, how do you think about what you want to achieve out of this? Are you trying to change the world? Are you trying to get money? Are you trying to like? Because then then you honestly then smaller size does matter. If you're if trying to get you know X amount of money where you don't have to worry about it, say your target is you know ten million dollars or hundred million dollars, there is such thing as too small and too big, and then you do have to think about it, right? So how how do you think around that? So I definitely want to build something big. I think I, I still have that many years left that I can <laughs> <Yeah>. think big. 
maybe i wasn't able to explain myself clearly what i was saying is like i think the hardest part is going from 0 to 1 and for me that's more important than market size like as an early stage I, if i read 1 because i'm playing in an industry that's big enough uh, i mean okay. that's that's like that's a fast growing trend and is big market i can always like find ways to like go from one to somewhere else okay so i i understand what you're saying so you're operating in a space where you know it is big enough um and it's just a question of a niche can jump horizontally to within that same space bigger exactly. so you i guess what you're saying is you're looking for that niche but uh, it's not going to be a size where it's impossible to jump is what you're saying yeah yeah how, how are you sure that that's not going to happen though Like, let's, 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 let's let's say for example the studio right mm-hmm. it's impossible for them to pivot away from small merchandising things and they're forever at that market cap size or that mm-hmm. the size of the the company the revenue or whatever right how how do you know you're not building something that where you're going to get stuck even though it's somewhere related in the ecosystem and space but you have really no easy way to get to another customer in a different horizontal space or different a different way to grow i think see i think first i think the filter where studio is is itself a pretty high success rate not a lot of companies okay. who start are not able to reach there okay. that's the first filter so now the second filter is from there where studio is to something bigger you have lot less competition and look studio is still playing in the game they have good, yeah. good revenues yeah. they actually don't need funding whatever they raise they don't need it they yeah. their revenues are much better so i would rather be in that position trying to figure a bigger market where i'm making good revenues than like trying to be in a huge market where the chances of like amazon crushing me is like this Yeah. So again I'm not pick I'm not saying smaller market is better than bigger market but what I'm saying is much more important for me to find a market where there's much less competition even if it comes at the expense of small market size. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's fair that's fair enough. So I kind of guess kind of to recap the way you think about so we talked about people your team the co-founders the product how you think about getting to a product and whether that scales into a market is that it, it just has to be a big enough niche essentially what you're saying and that niche if you can get to a niche that's something like the studio that where mm-hmm. the niche is big enough it's not going to be a niche where you only stuck at like you know 100,000 revenue and you can't even do anything right mm-hmm. you're, you're probably targeting a niche where it'll be big enough where it's comfortable and then you could figure out what to do from there yeah yeah okay that's fair and then i guess the last question then you know after all of this experience and time and we're getting older <laughs> the last question would be what, what do you do thing. if what, yeah. what if nevo fails this time You spend say say you spend five years and it fails. Mm. I think my goal with Nevo is to like, of course, build something. But if it doesn't work out, I my my second best bet is to build a sustainable business within Nevo, which just makes money. Yeah, I don't wanna. I don't have aspirations to become a like a, a super rich person. So it's okay. Like uh, if yeah. if it. Yeah, if it makes decent money then then I'm I'm equally happy. If it if I cannot even do that 5 years, man. Uh, yeah, we got to feed my kids. So probably do <laughs> consulting, maybe find a job if if nothing works out. We'll see. <laughs> probably the worst case, yeah. I I guess if you needed money, you could get a job. But then how how will you know when to call it quits then? How sorry, repeat that again? So like how, how do you know 5 years is too early? 
how do you know when to call it quits then see i i don't i i don't i don't i wouldn't say it quits i might go back to job work there for some time maybe put money in my kids raising and all man i can do again in 40s like it's fine okay. i yeah yeah so keep keep rolling the dice essentially yeah like i say like for me it's about the journey it's fine like i i didn't yeah. build anything i'm not going to die i'm i'm not going to feel bad about it but yeah. i i just i just yeah enjoy the process i mean, i think that's the correct attitude one one you're going to be happy two you know it takes a long time to if it's a traditional business or even it's venture return it takes a long time to extract that value right and and you do need to go on a journey to get there and just because you know the first five times it didn't work out eventually if you keep improving yourself and being consistent you probably hit upon something whether it's a profitable business or a successful venture right yeah so i think at the end of the day that's the correct attitude and at least you're going to be happy doing it right um, yeah i see i i think i personally think even if let's say i what what is like success right let's say i become a unicorn right then what what's next then there is decacorn then you do this yeah, so correct. this yeah, it's yeah. always moving up right so again like it's more about the journey than like your destination will keep changing all the time for sure for sure and i think that's a very good way to to look at it and i think for the younger audience maybe to to also or maybe the older audience maybe to change their mindset you know i think it's a much healthier place to be and i think you know you shared from your routine to your journey to to how that's transforming now so definitely appreciate your your sharing and your time before we close is there anything you want to plug should we be following anything anything you want to share or we should know about yeah i mean feel free to connect me on linkedin rajan devnath i'm actually like i said i'm exploring stage like definitely happy to talk with people like what are they doing what are the pain points but i i always like to like connect with people so of course that's there if anyone wants to join me on the co-founding journey i'm happy to talk about it i mean i don't see it as co- like doesn't like we can just exchange ideas like what pain points do you see and all like super happy to talk about it yeah that's that's right. basically sounds good you know i'm very excited for your next journey and where that leads you in the next few years i i think you will definitely find success you've been accumulating experience and you know you've been reinvesting it and it's going to compound and hopefully give you some good returns in the future one way or the other yeah thanks man thanks i i, I really enjoyed it good questions as well it also kind of like brings the memories back and refreshes yeah. like what like redefines what you're trying to do and all like it, it, it reminds you of those things so it was awesome chatting with you Hey listeners, thanks for listening to another episode of EOA. As usual, if you enjoyed this episode and learned something, please share it with your friends and family. Spread the love, share the joy. Help write a review on your podcast app platform as it helps us a lot. So what did we learn today? Initially, when I asked Raj to speak, he was a bit hesitant. I suspect he felt he didn't co-found the next big thing, hadn't raised a lot of money or had something valuable to share, which was far from the truth. A lot of my peers after 10 years of being a part of big venture building or scaling or even late stage tech companies are taking a step back and re-evaluating what they believe in and clarifying their philosophy and seeing how to manifest it in whatever project, idea or problems they wish to solve next. Many people still live for the ideals of others and feel the incessant need to signal or to live or be a certain way. I need to raise the next round. I need to have the best VC brand invested in me. I need to have a unicorn. While there's nothing wrong with these ideas in itself, it's important to understand the underlying motivation driving them. For when things don't go your way, which is certain at some point in the startup journey, what's the true grit that will get you through beyond these signals? 
I think Raj's turmoil in starting a new venture and having found her troubles and being able to share them is powerful and authentic. His paced approach in finding a new problem to solve is healthy, with a simple noble goal of making a small profit first before anything else is smart. In due time, with a good process and a good philosophy and continued shared growth with the best minds, we will see Nevo, his latest venture, bloom into something valuable regardless. See you guys back here for next week's episode. EOA out.